1 Corinthians 15. But if it, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then to be found, found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So, Alan Lightman has is the first holder of a double appointment and professorship at MIT. Uh, his appointment was on the one hand in the science field, in physics, and the other hand in the humanities as a fiction writer. And he wrote a book arising from his experience of living in these two worlds. The world as he understands it as a scientist, and the world as he hopes it would be as a professor of humanities. Uh, the world as humanity hopes it would be. The world that we all hope it to be. On the one hand, our hopes and aspirations. On the other hand, the hard data of science. He talked about teaching in the morning in a physics class one semester, where his effort was to derive the fundamental principles that explain the entirety of our universe. Trying to identify the three or four or five basic principles, best if we can figure out one principle that incorporates them all, that explain why the universe is the way it is. Rigid cause and effect. Predictability. That was the goal. We can explain this phenomenon based on the underlying causes. His goal was to spell that out. And then in the afternoon, he'd go into a humanities class in fiction writing and tell his students that your characters must not be predictable because human beings aren't predictable. Predictable is boring. So on the one hand, physics, on the other hand, humanities. 
And he wrote a book entitled The Accidental Universe. It's the title of the first chapter and the title of the book. The Accidental Universe. He wrote out of this cognitive dissonance from being in these two faculties. He says, on the one hand, this is what science tells me. On the other hand, this is really what I would like it to be. And how do I cope with this? Now, the book was not at all antagonistic to religion. He does indicate in the course of the book that he's an atheist. But by data, not by choice. His preference is not to be. So it's not an antagonistic book, and, and I'm not going to take an antagonistic stance toward it this morning. But what I'd like to do is to explore, he has seven chapters, seven dissonances between science and humanities. I want to explore at least four of them to show how the resurrection addresses each of those. But before we go there, let me tell you where we've been over the last few months, for those of you who come here regularly. Uh, you know, what we're looking at, from the Old Testament, last year we looked at what, from the beginning of creation until the first coming of Christ, the promises of God, beginning with Adam and then through Abraham, then fulfilled in Christ. And yet not all the promises were fulfilled. Suddenly the New Testament says, it's actually a two-stage fulfillment now and at some time in the future. And so we're living in this in-between time, between the already and the not yet, between the first fulfillment and the final fulfillment, between the partial fulfillment and the total fulfillment. And the New Testament describes this time. So we're doing a survey of the New Testament to say, what is our life going to be like in between these two ages and, and how should we respond to it? And so in Acts, what we see in the book of Acts is the, the, the first book describing the early history after the resurrection of Christ. What we see in Acts is the priority of the unreached. This is to be our major task as a corporate community and some of us as individuals will give our lives to this. And so we prayed for Richard and Rachel and their effort to help spread the gospel while they're working among the working class in Taiwan. Uh, the gospel has been in Taiwan for hundreds of years. But more, mainly among the college grads, the elite. Not so much among the working classes. So even though Richard's background qualifies him to be among the elite, he's going there to use his profession in an effort to reach the working class. And he's asking us to pray that he have more contact with the working classes. Because the gospel is underrepresented among the working classes in Taiwan. It fulfills the point of the book of Acts. And we had, in the first service, we had Eva sharing. Many of you will know Eva. I don't use her last name because she's in a creative access nation. But she explained in the first service, and people are asking her family, continue to ask her family, when's she coming back? When is she going to be done? And she says when she left, it was to be a lifetime appointment. So she'll come back when God tells her her work is done. But she's given her life to this until that such a time. The priority of missions to the unreached. First Thessalonians talks about, well, you know, as Christians, some of our values will differ from the culture around us. And then the culture it, it, it tends to be homogenous. And so there'll be some pushback where our culture, where our values differ. And we see that in our culture today. First Thessalonians talks about how to respond to that pushback. And Second Thessalonians, you know, every so often, and you probably, many of you aren't old enough to remember we weren't cognizant adults in the turn of the century, to the turn of the millennium. But every generation or so gets preoccupied with figuring out when the timing of Christ's return will be. Second Thessalonians, they were preoccupied with it in the first century. 
Second Thessalonians tells us how to wait, what we should do while we wait for Christ to return. Uh, racial and ethnic reconciliation is a huge issue for us today in America. It was a huge issue in the first century. And the church took the lead in racial and ethnic integration and reconciliation. And Galatians talks about the Christian responsibility in those areas. Now, 1 Corinthians is a much longer book. But every one of the problems in, in that Paul addresses, the Apostle Paul addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians, show the influence of culture on the church. You know, it's easy enough to think, well, we, we go to church, we're Christians, we think like Christians. The reality is, we're in church one morning a week and in the culture every day. So really what shapes how we think is our culture. But we look through several areas where the culture has shaped their thinking and where our culture shapes our thinking in a parallel fashion. Uh, we looked at competition, at spiritual competition, competition among churches and pastors. They faced it, we faced it. We looked at sex, a big issue in the first century, a big issue today. Cultural views of sex and how those impact us as Christians and what a Christian response is. Uh, other religions and other gods. You know, this is not a new thing that Christians are exclusive in their Christian in their faith and their commitment to God. They faced it in the first century. What does the gospel call us to in this regard? And then 12 to 14, you know, one of Richard and Rachel's prayer requests was that we help them to understand the spirit world and to resist it and, and face the assaults that they're receiving from the spirit world. We intellectualize all these things. We render them cognitive in the West, in America, among the educated. But this is a real challenge and difficult aspect of life, particularly among working classes in Taiwan. It's no surprise they have questions about the spirits and how that impacts spirituality. And the first century had them, we have them still today. And then finally, resurrection. If you listen to that reading that Jess gave us, it's very peculiar when you think about it. Because Paul's not arguing with secularists. Paul's not arguing with unbelievers. He's actually arguing in there with people that claim to be Christian. And yet they're not convinced of the resurrection of Christ. Now, we want to take just a moment to explain what their problem was with it, because it's just the opposite of ours. And when we read Paul's response, we need to take into, difference, take into consideration the difference between what their problem with the resurrection was and what our problem is. For them, their doubts about the resurrection were associated with this. The notion, they didn't have trouble with the resurrection so much, but with the resurrection of the body. As near as we can figure, they were influenced by Neoplatonic thought. And if any of you remember, we want to take a moment on this, hang in. The idea with Plato was that the physical world is a secondary, derivative world. The real world is the spirit world. So a death, oh, by the way, you ought to pay attention to this too, because a lot of Christians do the same thing today. A death, according to Plato, not according to Scripture, but according to Plato, and according to that much thinking today, the, 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 the husk, the outer husk, dies and is buried. And then, for the first time ever, the real part of us, the spirit, is free and released to go be with God. And so, 
Plato distinguished the real and the ideal, and this spread around some dimensions of Greek culture, and apparently it had influenced and confused the Corinthians. They weren't saying that Jesus wasn't raised, that we won't be raised. They were saying that Jesus' body was not raised, or that our bodies will not be raised. So Paul's argument focuses on the body. Of course, today, the issue is not the resurrection of a physical body. The issue for us today is that all, any concept of resurrection, can there be a resurrection? And so Paul is responding to one issue. We're going to take his response in, in the secondary, uh, uh, an application to a secondary issue that we face. But back, back to the context. Alan Lightman's book. Really, I'm just using this as an entrance into the question of what practical difference does it make? What actually, what cognitive difference does it make? What practical difference does it make? What emotive difference does it make if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead? What difference does it make in our lives and for our thinking? Lightman contrasts his heart desires with his science at seven points. We're going to look at four. The first, in his first chapter, he describes what he calls the accidental universe. The question is, is the world random? Or is the world purposeful? And science seeks, in part, to ask that question. He argues that physics is in search of a few fundamental laws that will provide a coherent explanation for the universe without need to appeal to the hypothesis of God. These principles explain why the world is the way it is and why we are in it. We don't need appeal to the hypothesis that is God. It's seeking a few fundamental principles, three, four, five, but as science developed further and further and reduced these principles to fewer and fewer, a problem stood out, Lightman noted, is that these fundamental forces or principles, like the force of gravity, are very finely tuned. A little stronger or a little weaker and our world, the earth, would not have evolved in a way that can support life, and we would not have lived, evolved in it. And so this became an issue, the anthropic principle, that seemed to indicate that we need a designer, a creator. If the world were just a little bit different, or these fundamental principles were just a little bit different, the world would be vastly different, and, and we could not exist. And our world would not exist. The anthropic principle, that the mess, this is so finely tuned, so finely designed that there must be a designer. But Lightman says, no. No, because as cosmology developed, and as we began to understand how actually vast the world is, we don't need to appeal to a designer anymore. Instead of a universe, he argues, we live in a multiverse. Not one world, but infinite number of worlds. And so he concludes, from a scientific perspective, from the zillions of universes that exist, we just happened to draw a universe that allowed life. Life 
is random. The fact that life exists is random. The fact that we exist is random. And therefore, our lives are random. From the zillions of universes, we just happen to draw a universe that allowed life. There is no coherent explanation. There is no purpose or goal to life and to history. It's just happenstance. He's not antagonistic when he says this. He just he said, I would love that there'd be purpose in my life, in my relationships, in my career. And yet, science tells me it's just a happy coincidence that we've all come, that we all exist, that we're all here together. Now, the resurrection speaks to that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, Paul writes this. For I received what I passed on to you as of fundamental importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have passed away. Do you see Paul's point? The, the notion of creating an explanation for the universe that rests on a few fundamental principles without appeal to God, or, or the notion that we're just a happenstance because of a multiverse, zillions of universes, and one just happened to support life and we evolved out of that. It tells us that there is no outside influence from God. There's no need for that. There's no need for that hypothesis. And Paul's response is, whether there's a conceptual need for it or not, the historical reality is there has been an intervention by God. And a lot of these things we cite as interventions are hopeful rather than documented. They're speculative, you know. If we get well, we thank God for getting, if we suffer a serious illness and we get well, we thank God for healing us. Yet we also have medical treatment. Is it God or is it medical treatment? And if it's God who healed us, why didn't he heal the other guy in the, in the bed in the room next to us? Why did that person die? You know, so a lot of this is, is speculative. But when Paul wants to address the question of, is there Fundamentally, is there purpose? Is there a reality beyond the material? He turns not to his own experience, first of all, and fundamentally. He turns to the first Easter. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that hundreds of people saw him, the resurrected Christ. He cites as historical testimony that we do have a God, a God does exist, who intervenes in this world. And not only does he intervene in creation, but he intervened in redemption. That this is a God who intervened in the life and trajectory of Jesus. This is a God who will intervene in our lives, in our, in our trajectories. The world is not random. The world has a purpose. And the world has a God who's pursuing his purposes through it. Lyman goes on to, well, in a chapter which he 
misnames the spiritual universe. Because in the end, he decides that there is no spiritual dimension to the universe. Really, he should have called the chapter the material universe. But he makes the point that there's a lot that the material universe cannot explain about us. On the one hand, you know, when people used to, when theologians or philosophers used to try to prove the existence of God, they would say, okay, here's a phenomenon in the world, we can't explain that. It must have been God. Or here's another phenomenon, we can't explain that. It must be God. Like, human beings exist. How can we explain that? It must be God. So anything we couldn't explain was God. It's called the God of Gaps theory. And the problem with that is, science has done a great job of explaining the material world, and explains more and more and more, until there's less and less motive to appeal to God to explain anything. And so, Lightman says, he concludes this, hasn't modern science now pushed God from the center where he explained everything, creation and humanity, moved God from the center where he explains everything, pushed God to the edges, to a tiny corner, because there's so little that science can't now explain. Hasn't science now pushed God out of the center to a tiny corner that he or she no longer has any room to operate or is irrelevant altogether? Now, Lightman is not antagonistic to faith or to people of faith. It's not like Richard Dawkins. He's not trying to convince you not to believe. He's just dealing with the data of science. If you're looking for explanations of why things are and why they are the way they are, Science does an excellent job, he says. We don't need the God hypothesis anymore. And, and that's the physicist talking. On the other hand, as an author, a novelist, someone who studies people in order to write about it, and studies the human experience in order to write about it, he says, why do some books touch us emotionally? Or some paintings? How do we explain aesthetics from a material universe? How do we explain self-sacrifice from a material universe? The, the, the reality that some people would sacrifice their comforts or their lives. You know, we hear about Richard and Rachel, we hear about Eva, we hear about others that we have left here. Ellie, for example, and others. In the hopes of being useful to God overseas, even though the first year is a struggle, Richard and Rachel said, the only difference between them and everybody else is that they're honest. The first year is also a struggle, always a struggle. Generally, the fourth and fifth year are also struggles. Life is easier if you stay where you were born than if you go to a new culture and try to reach a new people and learn a new language. How do we sacrifice, why do we sacrifice comfort or even life to help others? Lightman asks, based on the principles of our material universe, how do we distinguish right from wrong? Or, how do we even explain the fact that we care about any difference between right and wrong? How do we justify, Lightman asks, any sense or any longing, the longing we all have, that life has some kind of meaning to it, and that our lives have some kind of meaning. You know, make no 
bones about it, or, or, you know, let there be no doubt about it. Uh, lightning comes down on the, on the side of science. And yet, as a scientist, he says, I also teach humanities, and, and I describe people in my books. Who ha I try to write a book that has aesthetic appeal. What sense is there in that? I describe people who sacrifice for others. What sense is there in that part of the human experience? I portray right and I portray wrong. How is that sensible? Based on purely physical, natural science. He struggles between this this, with this cognitive dissonance between these two worlds that he inhabits. Now, ultimately, he comes down on this one because here's where the data is. But let's add this one data point. The data point of a resurrection. The data point of a God that was so concerned about his people who had wandered from that. Uh, the data point that a God who was so passionate about people who had turned from him that cared so deeply about his enemies that he would send his son and allow that son to be crucified. Uh, let's add the data point that after three days, the, the son was not left in the tomb as a failed messiah like all the other failed messiahs before and all the failed messiahs to come, that the son did not rest in the tomb. He rose. If God would risk his son, if Jesus would risk his life for us, then that makes perfect sense of any response of self-sacrifice. The resurrection justifies whatever risks we take in life, in ministry, for God or for other people. It justifies any desire for the life to have a deeper meaning. It shouts not just from the cross, but from the empty tomb, that life does have a deeper meaning. It proclaims a deeper significance. The Apostle Paul said, look, let's begin with the assumption that there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, verse 29, why do I endanger myself every hour in ministry, he says, as he faces storms and shipwrecks and persecution. I face death every day. I fought wild beasts. He faced so much hostility and, and persecution in Ephesus. He described it as wild beasts. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, with no more hope than that I'd live a comfortable life and, and die surrounded by my loved ones. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Surely, if the dead are not raised, let us simply eat and drink. Let us enjoy life. For tomorrow we die. No, he says, in the light of the resurrection, do not be misled. Come back to your senses, he tells the Corinthians, as you ought. And stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to you, Paul's point is, because of the resurrection, morality matters. Because of the resurrection, there's meaning in life. Uh, because of the resurrection, there's legitimacy to aesthetics, some things, and morality. Some things are right and some things are wrong, and the right things are beautiful and the wrong things are ugly. The world is not random. It's purposeful. 
The resurrection tells us, secondly, that the world is not simply material. It's beyond material. In the third chapter, Lightman contrasts another tension he faces. The idea that the world is finite and ephemeral and passing, transitory, versus a desire for life to go on forever. Now he illustrates this in an experience that few of us have had in this congregation. He illustrates this from the experience of walking his daughter down the aisle at her wedding. And as his daughter was getting married and he walked her down the aisle, it was a major milestone. Not just for her, obviously, but for him as a father. And he said he treasured the moment that we were walking her down the aisle. He was thrilled at her wedding. And yet, and yet, as he walks her down the aisle, it's a reminder of the little girl that she used to be and that he misses. Now she's an adult. And time has passed so fast. Time is so fleeting. And soon there will be no more. And he will die. And her life will go on. And she'll repeat the cycle. His scientific training tells him that life is ephemeral. His heart longs for life to be eternal. How do you live in these two worlds? And he says this, We long for immortality while all the evidence in nature argues against us. He concludes, Either my wish for eternal life is vain. This man confesses to be an atheist and yet he still recognizes this longing for eternal life. Either my wish for life to be eternal is vain, or else some realm of immortality exists outside of nature. Now, his training in science ultimately trumps his desire for immortality. He lives with this truncated world. And he's gracious about it, but it's unnecessary to live with a truncated world. Because the resurrection tells us not just something about what happened to Jesus, but about something that will happen to us. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. The perishable, our physical bodies, the perishable will clothe itself with the imperishable. The mortal will clothe itself with immortality. And when the perishable has clothed itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And he responds with a scoff. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting. The proclamation of the resurrection is an assurance, a confirmation that life is purposeful, not random. That life is not just material, but is also spiritual. That life is not temporary, but that it's eternal. And in a fourth chapter, Lightman turns himself to a a different concept, a fourth tension in his experience between physics and humanities. 
And it's this. That if you look at us against the backdrop of our universe, we are smaller than a drop in a bucket. We want significance. And yet, measured by mass, we're totally insignificant. He points out that in the early 20th century, as cosmologists were studying the universe, they needed to come up with a new unit of measure because they began to realize how vast this universe is. How do you talk about it? So they came up with a new unit of measure called light year. As a unit of measure, as six trillion miles. So you can say one light year, six trillion miles. You can begin to conceptualize greater and greater, vaster and vaster distances. And he describes, you know, the, the uttermost reaches of what we can ascertain of the universe now. But he says, that might not be the limits. It's simply, it takes that much, that much time for light to reach us, that this is the only light that's reached us. We don't know if there's something beyond this until we develop better instruments or get further out to look. He says, within, oh, he estimates 200 billion plus galaxies exist. More than 200 billion galaxies. Within those, there's an estimate of maybe there's 20 billion planets possibly capable of sustaining life. So 200 billion galaxies, perhaps 20 billion planets that could conceivably sustain life. The circumstances, the environment is right. And yet, on our own one planet out of these 20 billion or these 200 billion galaxies, and of our own one planet, if you take not just me as an individual, but all of us, all of humanity, and you got not just all of humanity, but you take all of life from uh, at all levels, all living things at all levels within our planet, we make up less than one times ten to the minus eighth mass of the planet. That is, all living things make up a tiny fraction of life on this planet, uh, on the mass of this planet. And then this planet makes up a tiny fraction of all the planets in the universe. And all the planets in the universe make up a tiny fraction of the entire universe. So he confesses to a desire that his life have significance and meaning. But compared to all living things on our planet, compared to 20 billion planets, compared to 200 billion galaxies, come on. How can our lives have any meaning or significance? We want to think we're significant. But compared to that, how is there any assurance that we are? Now, Paul didn't know about all of that. But he knew about the resurrection. And he says that the resurrection of Christ brings significance to our lives at least at two levels. It brings significance to who we are. And it brings significance to what we do. Consider who we are. Verse 49, Paul writes, Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, just as we are physical human beings, Paul says, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. Just as we have been mortal, so one day we will be immortal. Just as our physical bodies, just as we have been characterized by physical bodies, one day we, like Christ, will be characterized by
by spiritual body. We will see Christ and we will be like him. Our bodies will be transformed. We will be different than we are now. We will be like Christ. The assurance of the resurrection is that what happened to Christ will happen to us physically, not just spiritually. We will be spectacular. And then he says, Paul says, the resurrection adds significance to what we do. He ends his chapter with this. In the light of the resurrection, he says, verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not only are we significant from who we are, but we are significant in what we do. Our labor for God. Richard and Rachel now are, praying, are asking us to pray that they will have more contact with blue-collar workers. It's going to be a major shift. Rachel comes from that kind of background. Richard doesn't. It's going to be a major shift in worldview for him and experience for him. Ali says he spent a couple, what of it, more than a year in, in Taiwan and is trying to figure out how is he doing anything different there or achieving anything more there than he is here. This is the experience of any of us at our workplace when we try to have an influence for Christ. At our college, often what we see is very little. At our ministry in church, often what we see is very little effect. Is there any significance to it? The Apostle Paul says this. Be steadfast, immovable. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord. Because we know, in the view of the resurrection, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. As Jesus hung on the cross, everything about his life and sacrifice seemed to be entirely in vain. Three days later, its significance unfolded. That same resurrection power is at work in us and among us. Let's pray together. Father, may your word take hold in our hearts and be confirmed in our experience, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.